As I told you a moment ago, we are continuing our series in, uh, about our strategy, who we are as a church with Come, Connect, Serve, and Go, what that means for us as a staff and how we lead this church. But we said that as much as the staff and the deacons and the leadership of this church need to understand the vision and the strategy, we need every church member to know and to understand we want those four simple words, come, connect, serve, go, to mean something to each of you so that you can measure where you are in the process of your discipleship, where you are in your walk with Jesus, because this strategy isn't just about the broader church. And we think church, you know, we almost forget the church is who? It's us. It's people. It's individual People collectively gathered together to make up the body of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the church, we're not talking about an institution. We're not talking about buildings. We're talking about you, and we're talking about me, and we're talking about each other. And I want to read to you from the book of Acts this morning. Because in the book of Acts, we see really the question answered of what did the early church look like? When we talk about small group ministry, you have to understand that I believe small group ministry was God's intention from the very beginning of what he intended his church to do and how he wanted to accomplish the Great Commission through his people. When you look at the first century church, the first century church knew nothing of what we do as church. Okay, Uh, And most of us don't realize that. We haven't thought about that fact. The reality is the church from early on was being persecuted. There were no public buildings like this. Outside of the temple where the Christians would still go and gather for worship, outside of that, anything else that they did didn't involve what we think of when we consider church. There were no lights. There was no staging. There was no musicians in the sense of all these instrumentation. Listen, the church had no concept of buildings like it is that you see right here on this campus. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm just telling you that what it shows us is there is more to the journey in our walk with Jesus Christ than what we do right here in this room. If all you're doing is gathering on Sunday for an hour in this room, you are missing the greatest opportunity for you to be discipled. It hurts my heart a little bit to say this as a preacher. Because I would like in my pride, right, to think that, you know, I really want to believe it. And I do believe that the the role of preaching is huge in the life of the body and the life of the church. But I want you to know that I don't anticipate anyone being fully discipled solely by what happens here on Sunday morning. Jesus spoke to the crowds. But I want you to know that Jesus spent most of his time speaking to a very small group of men that he knew would turn the world upside down. And I want you to see with me this morning that when we talk about come, connect, serve, go, there really is a division in those things. Because what I believe, the, the, the focus, and if we do anything right in this church, we've got to make sure that our worship together as a body of believers and our connecting as a body of believers to study the word for accountability, for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of care ministry, for the sake of outreach, that worshiping and connecting, those two things are what everything else is going to flow out of. If we don't get the first two things right, we've got no hope of the second two things happening right. 
And I would say that many churches today struggle to see its membership serving and its membership going because they can't even get their membership connecting together for the sake of growth. Unfortunately, in this room, statistically speaking, thankfully, we're a little higher than the normal statistics. But statistically, I told you a few weeks ago, the statistics say that literally half this room, you can take it right up the middle, that half this room is not involved in connect group ministry in most churches. And I told you, without connect groups, without small group ministry, I'm telling you, you can't grow the way that Jesus Christ intends for you to grow as a believer until you are in relationship with other believers in Jesus Christ. And in the American church, 50% on average. That means there is a good number of churches that are below 50% just to get it to that average. And of course, when you look at numbers like that, it's no shock that by the time you start talking about serving, you've got 20% of the church doing 80% of the work. And then you've got churches. Listen, last year, 26,000 churches. You know how many people they baptized? Remember what I told you? Making disciples is who we are. And God help us. If we get to the point that we've done a year of ministry and we haven't even seen one soul saved, it would probably tell us that something that we're doing and our strategy and how we're making disciples, something is wrong because we're getting people to come to worship, but we're not getting them sent out to go and make more disciples. And I would say that is the story for many, many churches in our country today. That's why this strategy is so important. When I read to you about the early church. I want you to take this in. I want you to really listen to me this morning as I read this to you because this is who we are supposed to be as a body of believers. This is the church of Jesus Christ, what he intended in the beginning for all of us. Listen to this. In, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, it says this. They were continually. I want you to underline continually. Okay, that's an important word. That means on an ongoing basis, they were doing some things, some things that were important, some things that mattered. And I would dare say by the use of the word continually, I think it means that it was a normal part of their weekly and not just weekly, but their daily routine to do these things together. The early church knew nothing of just an hour on Sunday. It says... They were continually devoting, that's another big word, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Think about that statement. Here is a church. Here is a body of believers. They shared all things in common. They were living life together. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all. As anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
What I can tell you about our God is that he loves to take things that the world says is useless. He loves to take things that are weak. He loves to take things that the world calls foolishness. And he loves to confound with it. And he loves to show, show his strength through it. I think that's why Acts 1.8 is so important because he says to us that we, remember the apostle, he said, I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes, right? And it says, and you will receive what, church? Power. power. Now that word power, you may not realize, it is the word dunamis, right? Which in our language, in English, that's where we get the word dynamite. Now, dynamite is an interesting thing. If you've ever held a stick of dynamite, if you've ever looked at dynamite, what is so interesting is that you're holding something in your hand that is extremely, extremely powerful, yet it is so small and unassuming. If you've ever looked at dynamite, it's hard to believe that you could stick it in a rock and explode that rock into billions of little pieces. And I want you to take for a minute what God said, I want to give you power. I want to take all of you. And listen, the Holy Spirit of God enters into all of us. And when we obey the Lord, when we follow the Lord, when we do the things that he tells us to do, I want you to know that he can turn the world upside down with foolish things, with, listen, with weak things. Small things. Unassuming things. And most of the time, that's you and that's me. You say, where in the Bible do we find that God uses these small things to show his power? Well, over and over in Scripture. In our day and age, we think power, we think large. If you have a powerful army, that means you have a large army, right? If you're a powerful person, you almost immediately think this person must have a large bank account. We assume power equals size or largeness or bigness. And the reality is that Scripture doesn't teach that at all. What it teaches us is that us, by ourselves, we're nothing. But when you add God to that, guess what? Anything and everything is possible. Remember the story in the book of Judges chapter 7? It's one of the best stories, one of my favorites in the Bible, where you have this character, Gideon, who God called to lead the children of Israel out from under the thumb of the Midianite kings. And if you remember, the Midianite kings came to go to war. They were outside of, of where the Jewish people were living. And literally, it says that as they were out there encamped, there were 135,000 soldiers coming against Israel. And if you remember, he raised up Gideon. And he said, Gideon, I want you to go and fight the Midianites. And if you remember, God just simply said, put out a call to all of Israel. And whoever comes, use them in your army. And literally, as they make the call, 32,000 men come. Now, still the odds are staggering. 32,000 men against 135,000 men. You would think that would be small enough, but God looked at him and said, you tell any of them that are afraid, any of them that are too afraid to stay, they can go home. And God whittled that army down 10,000. You can imagine getting at this point is like, God, what are you doing? There's 135,000 soldiers, and God wasn't done. He says, that's still too many. If you remember, he put them to the test. 
And depending on the way the men drank, whether they drank defensively, still looking around for the enemy, or whether they just got down like dogs and lapped the water out of the stream, he determined who would still go on and fight because that's how God wanted it to, to show who he wanted to go fight. He boiled the army down to 300 men against 135,000 men. Now, our minds tell us who would be the most powerful army? The Midianites. But I told you, with God, all things are possible. And on that day, 300 men were used of God. Really, when I say used of God, they pretty much were just watching. When I say used of God, God won the battle that day. And just by smashing pots and lifting up their lamps and yelling at the top of their voices, literally the Midianite army got so scared in that moment, they started swinging their swords and killed 120,000 of themselves. Leaving just 15,000 who were routed by the Israelites that day. That's the God that we serve. If you remember the story of King David... Don't you remember the story of Goliath? A nine-foot-tall man, and none of the army of Israel wants to go out and meet this man. But God decides he's not going to use the mighty. He's going to use who? David. And who was David? Just a shepherd. And literally, he was a what? He's just a kid. He's just a boy, a young man who literally, while all the other men are shaking in their boots, here is this one kid that literally comes up and he knows what he believes. He believed the Lord. Remember when the Lord told the children of Israel, don't trust in horses, don't trust in chariots. What were they supposed to trust in? In God. And that young man trusted God and went out there with no armor and five stones and took down a giant, right? It's no different in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus was feeding the multitudes? 5,000 men. There could have been upwards of 15,000 women and children there. And don't you remember he looked at the disciples and he said, you know, we're going to feed these people. And their question was, Lord, how in the world could we possibly feed all these people? And then that little boy, what did he do? He walked up and he had five loaves and he had two fish. With God, is that enough? <laughs> and not only did he feed them, but there was 12 baskets of food left over. And folks, don't tell me that God won't use the smallest things to make the biggest difference. Some of you think, you know what, connect group doesn't matter. Can I, listen, I would tell you that God sees it very differently. I don't need a small group of men around me, a small group of women around me. I don't need a small group of couples around me. I don't need to be discipled in that way. I am good just all by myself. You may think that. That may sound wise in your mind and in your eyes, but God says something very differently to us. And I hope that you'll see that this morning. Because small groups in churches are one of the most powerful tools that God will use to make Disciples Here at Hepzibah, I want to share with you what Nathan gave to me. I told him as I was doing this series that the first week I wanted to share his vision. And not just his vision. Remember, Nathan is our education uh, uh, minister. But I want you to remember, we've got Terry Zimmerman, who is our children's director, and Jason Brule, who is student minister. And together, they have really thought through what it is that they want to accomplish in connect groups and what they want you to understand about what they're seeking to do in the lives of your children and the lives of your students and in your lives as adults. This is the vision that they have 
for connect groups. Nathan shared that with me this week. He said, our vision for adult connect groups is as follows. And it's three things. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this section. I'm going to spend it on the next thing that he shared with me. But first of all, he said that connect groups, you know what the primary purpose of connect groups are? Most of you would say, if I asked you that question, you would say it's teaching. Why? Because we've been raised calling connect groups what? Sunday school. And when you go to school, what do you do? You learn, you sit down, and usually somebody teaches. And listen, that's why we quit calling it Sunday school. We're not trying to be, you know, bothersome to people who have always called it Sunday school or trying to ruffle any feathers. You know what we're trying to do? In a world that didn't grow up in Sunday school, when you say you're going to Sunday school, they're thinking, well, number one, I don't know nothing about the topic that they're going to be teaching me. And when I went to school, you know what they used to make me do? They used to make me take tests. They used to make me answer out loud. They used to make me go to the board. They used to make me read out loud. And you know what people are thinking? There ain't no way I'm going to this thing that they call Sunday school. Folks, let me tell you something. The point of Sunday school never was teaching. Teaching occurs in Sunday school. But you know what Sunday school technically was and always should be in a church? It is the outreach arm of the church. Sunday school was meant to reach people. You see, I told you a few weeks ago, it's not about what you get in church as much as what you give. Because you see, one of the things that we seek to do is we've got people that visit this church and they're certain ages and they have children that are certain ages. And when they visit us, you know what we should be doing? We should be turning around and making contact with them. And the best way for that to happen is with people that are similar to their own age or departments that are similar to where their children are. So if you visit our church and you come to our children's department, I would like to think that our teachers in our children's department are going to make an effort to call and to reach out and Terry does a great job with that, and her department does. If they have students, I would like to think that as people visit this church and we've got students visiting this campus, that students and that the teachers of students would be reaching out to those students to bring them into this body of believers. Because it's like I've been telling you, when they come in, they feel like an outsider. This feels like family to us, but to someone who's never walked in the room and may not know anybody, do we make them feel welcome? Do we let them know that Christ loves them and we love them and we welcome them into this body of believers and when they visit do they go away and no one ever contacts them no one even recognizes that they came and they went folks that's what connect groups are meant to do be used to pull people in but secondly not only do they reach people but listen connect groups are where we teach people the great thing about connect groups is simply this when we talk about teaching people, the difference between in there and in here is, in here you really can't ask questions. Now we yell back and forth and we talk back and forth. It's kind of unusual. I love this church the way I can speak and y'all can say things from out there and we, we kind of back and forth. But the reality is you can't say, Pastor Aaron, I'd like for you to stop right here because I've got five questions that I want to ask you concerning what you're talking about. If we started that, I wouldn't get past the first point of my sermon, right? But when you're in connect groups, do you realize that that is the place where teaching takes place on a face-to-face -face level? When you don't understand, you can stop. When you have questions, you can ask questions. You can gather together, and the teaching is on a much more intimate level. And not only do you get to see the teaching taught, 
But hopefully in that class, you get to see the teaching lived out. Because most times we need to see how to live out our faith, and it's hard to do. Many of you don't know me. Many of you have never been to my home. Many of you don't know what I'm like on vacation or what I'm like at work or what I'm like anywhere else. You just know me standing behind the pulpit. But in those classes, you get face-to-face with other believers who are walking the journey that you're walking. And you get to see not just how to teach them and how to be taught, but you get to see how to live it out. And it makes all the difference. It's what I can't do in here, but can be done there. And thirdly, ministering to people. If you look at the vision for our Sunday schools, it's to reach people, to teach people, and to minister to people. The reality is, we've said this, even with Gordon, we can't keep up with all the needs that are happening in this church. Gordon is trying to handle things like uh, births or deaths, or he's trying to handle things like hospitalizations. And listen, Gordon works far more hours than we already pay him for because in this large of a church, it just keeps coming. But that is not even beginning to touch the people who are going through a divorce, the people that are going through cancer, the people that are going through anything and everything that you could ever dream up or imagine. People in this church are struggling, and what we lack many times in the church in the United States of America are care groups, ministers in classes who take the needs of others and seek to meet them. The reality is you may be gone six weeks from this room before I even actually realize you're not sitting here. Can you imagine what it's like for me to sit up on the stage and try to keep up with where everybody is in this church? I mean, you are kind of like cows to stalls. You all do kind of go back to the same place. You do make it a little easier. But the reality is, you know, even today I see some people sitting like, Mike, your stall's over there on the end of that pew. You done moved on us today, right? I mean, the reality is. I can't keep up with that. But if you're connected in small group ministry, people see you and they know you and they know what's going on in your life. Then we actually get the calls in the office, hopefully, of what's going on. But more than that, the class can begin to step in to the lives of these believers. That is the vision. Those three things are the core to who we are. And you're going to see how they fit this text beautifully. But secondly, Nathan wanted me to share this with you. He said that biblically, we believe, and this is what connect groups are all about. I told you that the mission is the Great Commission, that making disciples is the objective of every department in our church, and most certainly for our education department. And biblically, as Nathan seeks to make disciples, he says these are the primary marks of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. This is what a devoted follower of Jesus looks like. And listen to what Nathan says. This is how he and his department and the youth in their department and the children in their department, these are what they're aiming for. These are the marks. These are the things that we should see in the lives of believers in this church that I believe we will only fully see and understand in small group ministry. And it begins with transformed hearts. Remember, it's the outreach arm of the church. If we are effectively teaching in Sunday school or in connect groups what it is that we're supposed to be teaching, if we're sharing the gospel, if we're teaching the gospel, if we're living out the gospel, the best chance for someone to receive Christ, it is unlikely that they will just come to service and then walk forward in service. Usually people come to Christ because of a personal invitation. It's just all there is to it. 
I'm not saying that people won't walk the aisle through Sunday services, but that's why in most churches you don't see that many salvations is because you're depending on a pastor to do all of the work of evangelization. The reality is you should be his witnesses, and in small groups you get the chance to talk face-to-face with people about their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And more than anything else, we want to see connect groups bring about transformed hearts. People being born again. To be a disciple, you must first be born again. And it's an evangelism that results in biblical conversion. It's the first step to becoming a disciple. You can't be a disciple if you aren't following Jesus. So obviously, a strong part of our strategy is how do we be sure that in our classes we are teaching the gospel of Christ so people can be saved in those small groups. But secondly, a transformed mind. Once you have a transformed heart, then you begin to see your mind transformed. That's why, secondarily, we said that it's about teaching, not only about evangelizing, not only is it the outreach arm of the church, but once someone is saved, how do they become sanctified? How do they become more and more like Jesus? The best chance for growth is as they walk with other believers, abiding in God's Word, disciples of Jesus. Let me tell you what they are. And hold up a mirror to yourself today, church. I don't say these words just for those who have just gotten saved. I say it to all of you. I want you to really think. I want you to hear me. I want you to really listen to me in this moment because I want you to answer this question for yourself. You're the only one that truly knows. Disciples of Jesus, they are passionate about the Bible. Many of you in here today are claiming to be disciples of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you passionate about the Bible? Reading and studying God's word. Do you want to be among God's people so that you can grow in your faith? Disciples are passionate about the word. They hear the word. They read the word. They study the word. They memorize the word. They meditate on the word. Does that describe you? Because only then can the word of God completely reshape who you are. Now, you notice I didn't even say in there. I mean, here was just the first part of it, right? I don't know about you, but I would be extremely frustrated if my kids were 12 years old and I have to still spoon feed them in their mouth. Would that not be frustrating? That you sit down at the table and you can't eat your meal because you're constantly going, all right, baby. Right? I mean, they're 12. You'd be ready to hurt somebody. Or you got a 12-year-old that's sitting there going, Daddy, I still don't know how to use a knife. I can't cut my... And you're sitting there having to cut their meat. That's how most Christians live out their Christian life. Because you say, I study the Word of God because I come on Sunday morning. No, you haven't studied. You know what happened? I studied. And I spoon-fed it to you. And the question becomes, when do you learn to study the Word of God for yourself? When do you take time at home to read the Word of God, to memorize the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God so it has the chance to reshape your life?
When you do this, the worldview of the Bible becomes your worldview. You know why we fight so much over issues in the church? It's because we don't have God's view of things. We only have our own. And when we all have our own view of the way things should be, guess what happens in a church? You know how unity comes? Very simply. When we all listen to the Lord and allow him to have control of us, guess what? The Lord's not divided. The Lord will guide us and bring us together. The more we know his word, the more we believe his word, the more we trust his word. Listen, the more unified we will come, become as a body of believers. No pastor can bring unity to the church. All the pastor can do is preach the word of God and either the people will receive it and then go home and study it and then day by day have their quiet time and get on their knees and pray and God will begin to move in their heart and life and then the life and heart of everybody else who's on their knees praying and studying the word of God week by week, day by day and lo and behold, we're gonna come back here together and you know what we're gonna find? That we agree, not because it's what I think, but it's simply because of what God says. That's where we need to be. That's where every church has to find itself, with a transformed heart, but also a transformed mind. Are you committed to pick up your Bible tomorrow morning to believe it, to understand it? That means you don't get up. People say, I don't know what the Bible says. I don't, I don't get what it means. You know what I would simply tell them? Then pray and ask God to open your eyes and sit back down and read it again. What do you do when your kid says, well, I don't understand? Sit back down. Keep studying. Read it again. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, let me tell you one of the great mysteries of life. God is not hiding from you asking you to seek him. God is revealing himself to us. He's not seeking to make it difficult. It just takes steady, passion, commitment. Remember what it said? They continually devoted themselves. When we talk about devotion, it means it consumes our thoughts and our time and our energy and our talents and our treasure, right? When we're devoted to something, it gets our attention. It gets our, listen to this, it gets our priority. Thirdly, Nathan's dead on right in the staff. Transformed heart, transformed mind, but transformed affections. That the more you study the word of God, the more he changes what you love. You say, why is that important? Jonathan Edwards would go on to say, he wrote a book called Religious Affections. He would say it's the surest sign of a person's life in Christ, that they're growing and they're thriving and they're walking, that they're indeed believers, is that when we accept Christ, our affections change. People ask all the time, well, Aaron, how did you change from being a, a sinner, a person that didn't follow God, to one who started following God? All I did was I placed my faith in Christ. I asked him to make me new, to transform my heart. I simply said to him, I repent. I'm going to turn towards you. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I am asking you, Lord, to give me the strength to turn from this life and to follow you with all my heart. You're king. You're Lord. You speak. I will obey. That's all that I said to him. And you know what began to happen? I can't describe it any other way than God changed me on the inside and the things that i used to hate like you got to get up early and go to church because mom's making you go right suddenly i didn't have to go you know what suddenly started happening i wanted to go why because god changed me inside out 
I, I didn't have to read the Word of God because Dad was making me read the Word of God. I wanted to read the Word of God. And that's what happens in the lives of believers that come in contact with His Word over and over and over. And when they respond to His Word, they begin to change and God changes our affections. Our priority changes because our love changes. What we love, what we value. Transformed affections means we start to love what He loves. The bottom line of it is this. Disciples of Jesus grow to love what God loves. They grow to value what God values. And they hate what God hates. Their affections are suddenly set on the things of God. And they begin to make everything else pale in comparison that this world offers. They grow to obey God out of a desire not simply duty. That's who we are in Christ. That's the transformation that takes place in us. But not just affections, but a transformed will. That means that once we start to love the right things, you know where love always leads? It, it, in our English mind, it doesn't make sense. We don't always make the connection. But Jesus made it very plainly. He said, if you love me, you obey me. But if you don't love me, then guess what? You won't obey me. Do you see how love and obedience are connected together? Because he said the things that we love drive what we do. You pick what you love most in your life, you'll move heaven and earth to accomplish that thing because that's what you love above all else. And if your love is for God, if your love is for His Word, if your love is for His people, if your love is for the nations, then let me tell you, you start moving heaven and earth to have that thing which you love, and your love ultimately leads to obedience. The question is, who is Lord of your life? Or better yet, what is Lord of your life? Some of us have put a what in the place of what should be a who. And what you love, I'll promise you, that's going to transform your will. You're going to do whatever it takes to have what it is that you love. So this transformed will, it means that disciples of Jesus, they obey God by obeying everything his word teaches. That's part of what surrender means. In the basics of surrender, doesn't that basically mean that I'm going to stop fighting you? Remember on the U.S. battleship? or the destroyer where the, the Americans and the Japanese gathered and they signed the armistice. Don't you remember that? And, and ultimately, the Japanese general, he took his sword and he gave it to the American general. Do you remember that? If you studied your history books. And you know what he was basically saying in that moment? I'm not going to fight you anymore. That's what surrender looks like. Are you ready to pick up the word of God tomorrow and do what it says regardless of how you feel? Will you let God have your will and let him transform it so that you begin to obey? You recognize his ways aren't my ways. His thoughts aren't my thoughts, but his are far greater than mine. Therefore, I yield myself to him. Because that's going to make all the difference in your spiritual life. And we're trying to bring about a transformed will in these connect groups. By obeying God and everything that he teaches. We don't obey because we want to make ourselves right with God or to add anything 
to the work that Jesus Christ has done. But out of faith and out of hope and out of love, we want to obey. Because we want to honor him. And the last thing, or I'm sorry, the second thing to last is transformed relationships. Number five, transform relationships. We love our neighbors. You see, in connect groups, we grow in relationship to each other. You may not realize it yet, but we need each other. The one another's in Scripture are very important. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens, right? Share with one another. All the one another's encourage one another. If you go and study the one another's in Scripture, it is a call for us as believers to be active in the lives of other people. I told you last week that if you don't come to this place, you're thinking only about what you're going to get or not going to get by your presence. You have no concept. Most of us haven't thought, it's not about what I'm going to get Sunday, but what I'm going to give. Who is there that needs all these one another's? And I come to this place not to get, but to give. And in giving, guess what? You get. Here is the issue with most of us. You don't have to come here wondering, are you going to get anything? Because here's what I know about God. I know that God says, when you're hungry and you come to him, you'll hunger no more. When you're thirsty and you come to him, you'll thirst no more. What I know about our God is that he is a God that completely satisfies. You don't have to worry when you come into this place, what am I going to get? God is going to meet us here. He's in us. He dwells in us. He's been blessing us all week. He's been with us all week. I love what Gilbert prayed. If God doesn't give us one more thing, he's given us so much more than we deserve. We shouldn't even come here worried about what we're going to get because we know we have a faithful God who's going to fill those who are empty. The question is this, when God fills us up, are we going to pour it out? Knowing that if we pour it all out, guess what? God's going to fill it up again. And if you pour it all out, guess what? God's going to fill it all up again. Because that's who God is. That's what God does. Remember, you were blessed by God, just like the Jews. You were blessed by God, not so you would be blessed alone, but that through his blessing you, you would become what? A blessing to everybody around you. And that means that, listen, now see, here's the thing. Let's go ahead and, you know, I tell people all the time, can you do this on Sunday? I say, no. You know why? Because this is my place and my priority on Sunday. You say, well, that's crazy, Aaron. Don't your kids play sports? They do. And we tell them, if it's after 1 o'clock, they'll be there. If it's before 1 o'clock, they're not going to be there. Well, we have tournaments, you know, every so often, you know, way away. And what, you know what I want to teach my kids? Sports isn't the priority. The body of believers is the priority. I, listen, if I wasn't pastor, and Bill will tell you, there was a year and a half I wasn't pastor here. But you know where I was every Sunday? Sitting right here. And if I wasn't sitting right here and I was on vacation, guess where I was? I was sitting in somebody else's church learning the word of God. I, listen, when I'm on vacation, most times I go to Sunday school and church, even if I don't know a soul there. Not because you pay me. Not because you were going to ask me did I go to church that week. But because I want to be with God's people. And I don't know about you, but church is supposed to be family. 
And I'll tell you this, you know how important it is to me? Some of you say, well, Aaron, you go to Florida a whole lot. You know why I go to Florida a whole lot? That's where my dad and mom live. And you give me a chance to go home to my mom and dad, guess what? I'm gone. When my dad picks up the phone and says, Aaron, I want to spend some time with you. Can we go fish? Yeah. I love every moment I get with him. I love every moment I get with my siblings. And when I get the chance, I'm gone. Because I love my family. Folks, that's what church is supposed to be. You say, why is it such a priority? It's family. God expects us to carve out this time. There's nothing more important going on in your life than ultimately being with the family that God gave you on a Sunday morning. If you lay out half the time, you know what statistics say? 50%, think about this. Today in churches, take the room, that 50%, I mean the average member in here is going to be at church 50% of the time. Let that sink in. To me, that's a tragedy. God has carved out I mean, we're just talking a few hours, right? And we struggle. What about if you were the church first century? You know what it says there? They were continually devoting themselves day by day, being together. I mean, we got it easy. We didn't even realize it. We act like being here once a week is such a burden. If it's a burden for you, if there are other things that easily compete with being here, I want you to check your heart because there really is something there that you need to consider about why being with his people is so low on the priority. Because we want to see transformed relationships where the body of Christ comes together. Disciples of Jesus, they love one another as Christ loved them and they love their neighbors as themselves. This love expresses itself in forgiveness, in service to each other even to our enemies. Our love includes our church, our families, and the global body of Christ. But folks, it also floods over into the lost, into the poor, and into the needy. The more closer you get to Jesus Christ, the more you're growing in your faith, let me tell you what's going to happen. You become passionate about what's, what God's passionate about. That's relationship. He came in to seek and save those that were what? Those that were sick, those are the ones he came to, right? He moved and left heaven to come to earth to save us. He sacrificed everything to have a relationship with us. Folks, that's what we give when we are here on this campus. We have the opportunity to pour our lives into the lives of others so that they might be saved, so that they might be transformed in their mind, affections, will, and relationships. And folks, when all that changes, let me tell you the last thing that is definitely going to change. A transformed purpose. The six marks of a disciple, the last one is a transformed purpose. Because when the other things begin to happen in your life, this is the inevitable end. If you notice, I said the last two things are about relationship and about going. Serving and going. You see why I said that in connect groups... At the end of the day, it's through connect groups that we draw you in to send you out. 
what connect groups should be doing. If, if your connect group isn't doing it, good. Go to your connect group next week and talk about why you're not doing it. Do your connect groups give you opportunity to serve in this body of believers? You see, the most ineffective way for us to get someone to serve in this church is for me to stand up here and just blanket say, hey, if anybody wants to serve on this Sunday or this Saturday, why don't you come and serve? Everybody insists that if I get up and say it, that somehow is the, the fairy dust that makes people serve. That really isn't the way that it's supposed to be. You know the way it's supposed to be is that connect groups see service opportunities. And let me tell you what you teachers are, just to be sure that everybody's on the same page. If you're a connect group teacher, let me tell you something. You may not realize it, and maybe they didn't do a good job explaining this to you. I will explain it to you right now. You are a pastor of a very small congregation. How would you like it if I was never here on Sunday? Commitment matters to the class, right? Just like you want me to equip you to do ministry, you teachers have to equip your classes how to do ministry. That means you've got to provide for them ways and opportunities to serve. When missions are going on, the best thing that I can tell you is, class, let's get together. When I taught a connect group, that's what I did. I would literally say, hey, we've got this mission project coming up. Why don't we as a class get together and commit to go and do this mission together? Do you realize that more people in that class will go by doing it that way than me standing up here trying to ask from this pulpit? You as a teacher have more capacity to bring change in the lives of people than I do as the pastor. I would do anything to be able to have enough time in my week that I could meet with 12 and 12 and 12 and just break it all down and that I could have all the time in the world with everybody in this church, but that's never going to happen. But you teachers, you get to focus on the small group, and you get to transform lives. And we're grateful for every teacher because you don't understand, many of you, that you technically are little pastors making a big difference. Disciples share the gospel. And they disciple other believers and they engage in the global spread of the gospel to all peoples. And you see in this text, folks, if you just look at Acts chapter 2, what the early church shows us about small groups, everything that we've talked about, it's right there. They continually devoted themselves to teaching, right? So we must be committed to the study of God's word. That's what the text says, passionate, committed to our sanctification. No growth comes if you don't study the word of God. Do you hear me? No growth comes. If you think I'm going to sit in here Sunday once a week and get food, that would be like you saying I'm only going to eat one day a week for one hour a week. What's going to happen to you? You're probably going to die. If you don't die, you're going to be very sickly. You're not going to have any energy. You're not going to be of any use. And the reality is the proportion to which you get in the word of God is going to be the proportion in which you begin to grow. And if you're not in the word of God, let me tell you, you're not growing and you're not maturing. I love this quote. It says, a believer should count it, I want you to hear this, a wasted day when he does not learn something new from or is not more deeply enriched by the truth of God's word. Did you hear that? 
a Christian should count it a wasted day when he does not learn something new or is not more deeply enriched by the truth of God's word. Secondly, you see that we're committed to prayer. That's what it says. You say, why didn't you mention prayer before? Because prayer and Bible study, just so you know, they're the same thing. You say, no, prayer and Bible study are different. No, prayer and Bible study are meant to be the same thing. Prayer is where we speak to God. You know what Bible study is? Where God speaks to us. And you don't ever want to have just one side of that. Could you? Is anything more frustrating than when someone is talking to you? Wives, can I get a what, what, right? When the husbands, you're talking to them, and you go through five minutes, and you can just suddenly tell there's a glaze over the eyes, right? And you say, sweetheart, what did I just say? They say, I heard you. And then that horrible question men get asked, what did I say? <laughs> Do you realize how often that's the way it is with us and God? We can walk out of here. And forget within two minutes everything that we heard. Why? Because we never took time. You see why I make y'all pray at the end of service? Because I want you immediately in that moment to be able to not just say the invitation is for lost people. No, the invitation is for saved people to come and to be obedient to God, to respond to what it is that he spoke. You want to enrich your prayer life? Enrich your Bible study. Let God speak, and then that relationship becomes real because God speaks, and you speak, and God speaks, and you speak. God speaks, and you respond, and that will change your intimacy, and your walk with Jesus Christ. It's why both are important in the life of the church. So we must be committed to the word, to prayer, to fellowship. We just said we're a family. Relationships, we're honesty, transparency, sincerity are open, and, and they're available to people in their life. Most people, listen, in a, in a group like this, this is probably one of the saddest statements. There are many people that come into a church like this every week and they're surrounded by people, Christian people. And yet they feel as alone in this room as they do out there. Should it ever be that way? I mean, don't you remember what the psalmist said? No one cared for my soul. Should anybody ever walk into this room and leave this place feeling like, you know what, I just sat in the midst of 500 people at this church called Heps, but I'm not sure that anybody knew me, recognized me, cared about me. I'm not sure anybody for one moment cared for my soul. It can't be that. We have to be committed to relationships and to committed to fellowship. We were made for communion. I find it very interesting that the first time in the Bible God said something was not good. You know what that instance was? Remember he made creation and every day he said he made it and it was good. He made it and it was good. And then he said it was very good when he made man. But then one day he met Adam and he was there in the garden. Remember what he said about Adam? He said it is not good that man is what? Many of you, that's why you're still struggling in your faith the way that you are. Is because you and your family are trying to do this alone. You weren't made to be alone. You were made for relationship. And it's not good for man to be alone. And so we have to be. And they were committed to fellowship. They were committed to praise and worship. I love that when they gathered, they expected God to do something in their midst. They were filled with awe and wonder at how God was moving. I love Bill Brown's Sunday school class. They meet over in the corner over there at like 8.30 or 8 o'clock or sometime. I think it's 8 and the first door, when you come in that side door, it's the first room there. You know what I love about their class? 
is that he takes seriously what it means to be a small church. You know what they do in there? They sing. I love it. You can walk down the hallway on Sundays, and they're singing. You know what they know and what they've come to believe? That worship doesn't just happen in here. It happens out there. And wherever people gather together, you know what you can do? You can worship and sing praise. They come expectant that God's going to speak, and they have something to sing about. That's who we should be when we gather together. They were committed to praise and to worship. They were committed, fifthly, to serving one another. They gave and received care. They were committed to the one another's that we talked about. They recognized each other's needs and sacrificed, truly sacrificed to make sure those needs were met. They shepherded the people that were in their midst. And by the way, you know what the word pastor means, right? It just means shepherd. When I say I'm the pastor, all that means is I'm the shepherd. Nurture, care, love, encourage, right? Feed the sheep. All the things that sheep need, that's what pastors do. And folks, pastoring is a spiritual gift. Pastoring, just like all the other spiritual gifts, there should be an element of it in us, even if it's not our gift. We ought to care for the souls of men. And you teachers, you are pastors. And number six there, the last one, it just it, you can see how these go so well together. They were committed to outreach. What I love is, you know how outreach happens? It's so awesome the, the way to see it that when, when all those transformations begin to happen in your life, you know what begins to happen? Joy flows out of your life. I'm never more joyful than when I'm right in the center of God's will. When God is speaking to me, when I'm in prayer, when I'm memorizing the word and I'm letting it transform my life and my affections and my relationships, when all that transformation is taking place in my life, let me tell you, that is when joy arises. And the world takes notice of joy in believers. And it says that as they gathered together, you know what the result of all those things were? Joy. And in the midst of all of that joy and all of that transformation, look at what it simply says. That day by day, the Lord was what? Adding to their number. Growing churches. You can watch it. You can follow it. You show, you show me a church that is growing in its connections and in its small groups and is in small group discipleship, which we're going to really hit heavy next week, how Jesus took 12 and how he took three and how he poured into one, that need to really look for leaders and raise up leaders in small, all that stuff we're going to talk about next week. I'll tell you the truth. The churches that do that best, they are the churches that you are seeing, sending them out to serve and sending them out to go. And they are the churches where discipleship is happening. And guess what? You're filling the top again with people who are saved and now they're coming to worship and now they're going to connect and they're going to serve and they're going to go and guess what it keeps happening again and again and again aren't you ready for the day that we can't even try to contain what's happening here that it's so out of control we don't know what to do that we got more people coming in the doors than we've got seats and we got to start getting creative and we got to plant more churches i long for that day and I hope that you long for it too. And as Kevin comes this morning, I just want you to think back to what I shared with you. 
about man was not meant to be alone. If you're here today and you're not connected in the small group ministries of this church, I'm going to ask you today, we've got the table set up. Maybe you've been bringing your kids and you're thinking, how can I take my kids and see them really flourish and grow in their faith? What can I bring not to supplement what I do as a parent, but to complement what I do as a parent? I will put our children's ministry up against any children's ministry out there. Our folks are committed to making disciples of your children from the youngest of ages. If your kids come here and get involved in those connect groups, let me tell you something. If they get involved in children's church, let me tell you something. I promise you, your kids are going to come home and they're going to be challenging you with the growth that they are having in their own lives. Are your kids connected? I feel the same way about the student ministry and what Jason is offering through our church, through these small groups, through his teachers that pour into the lives. I had a couple right in here, uh, uh, or a lady, just a few weeks ago that literally brought her son up. And you know what she had to say about the church? She said how much men like Gilbert Todd and Don Musgrave have meant to the life of their child because they simply week in and week out are pouring in that young man doesn't have the male figure in his life that he would like to have there at home. But you know what he has? He's got some male figures here at church, and it's making all the difference in his life. And let me tell you, it is a powerful statement to his mother that there are men that care. That's the kind of student ministry we have here. Jason's going to be right out there. Get involved. And if you're not in a connect group adult, you need to be leading your families in this. Men, you need to be sure that you've gotten up early and you've gotten here to church and you are putting your children and your spouse and you in the best place to be discipled and to be transformed. It's up to you, men. Lead your families well. Father, we thank you. Lord, for the challenging word that you always give us. And we thank you that, Lord, you gave us an answer to the problem of loneliness. You gave us spouses. You gave us children. Lord, you gave us the church of Jesus Christ so that we never have those moments in life that are so joyful that we celebrate alone. We celebrate with the body and never those moments where we suffer alone. But, Lord, in our suffering, the body comes alongside. Lord, that can only happen as we gather together in small groups, it is the way this big church will become small in the lives of the people that need ministry, that need to be saved, that need to be transformed. So, Father, I pray that today everyone will leave this room and go talk to those people at those tables about children, about youth, and that the husbands and the fathers and the mothers will make the decision for their families to get deeper in their faith and in their journey with Hepsua Baptist Church. So, Father, we know that you are stirring hearts. And today, I pray that many, many would make the decision to stop just making this about one hour a week and get serious about their discipleship. And so, Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that doesn't know that you sent your son, that doesn't know that he gave his life for their sins, Father, I pray that today they'll come to believe that Jesus died to save them, took their place on the cross, died to pay the price for their sins. He was buried and he conquered death. He rose again. And Lord, if they will cry out to him and repent of their sins and follow him with their whole hearts, Lord, you will save them. Father, I pray that you would challenge us today. 
and that if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they would have the courage to step out of their seat while others are praying, and they would come and say, Pastor Aaron, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to follow him. And Lord, that today they would join this church family and that they would begin this journey. So Father, whatever you want to do in this moment, do it in us as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.